Hi, I'm Terrence Berry. I'm one of the members of the church council, and uh, I'll be doing the scripture reading today. Uh, This morning, it's from Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. I'm not sure if you um, experience some of the same things that I do, but I'm a human, so I'm guessing some of you are, and that is anxiety, worries, and fears. Today, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7 as an example or template for the rest of Daniel if you wanted to read on your own. And I'm going to say this. If you are the kind of person who is naturally optimistic, you could probably just shut out from here. You can. This is really not for the optimists who always see on the positive side of things. But really, for those of you who are either pessimistic or realistic, where you struggle sometimes with the world in which we live, your own life, your own worries and anxieties. So I don't know what yours are, but for me, I know one of my common anxieties or worries is for my kids. I've got three kids, and um, you know they're teenage and older, but it, at times I can worry about each one of them individually, something to do with their life, something going on in their life, about their future, about what's next, about things that I'm seeing, about, and you start getting down these paths that parents often do about their kids. More recently, over the past year, um, it's been COVID-19, right? This global pandemic. And specifically for me, it is, will we ever get out of this? I mean, really? And even if we sort of get out of it, will we really, really get out of it? I mean, I love indoor concerts. I love Christmas Eve and Easter um, when our church is just filled inside of Madison Auditorium. And I wonder, will we get back to that again? And as a result, my worries are often thinking ahead. How am I going to lead this church if we don't come out of this? Or even as we start to, and and I don't know what's next. How do I create vision and direction? Because I do believe God has something in store for us in this place. But that anxiety and worry can keep me up at night or wake me up early. What about you? Is it finances? Is it your health, your marriage, your aging parents, your future? Right now, one of the biggest worries and anxieties, um, especially amongst Christians that I've seen, has been the cultural and political trajectory of our country. 
And, you know, this has been sort of the narrative, not just as Christians, but across America over the past year and part of the heated nature of everything. But as Christians, there's been increasing anxiety around the secularization of America and what happens if Christian values are no longer upheld and, and increasingly they're not upheld in the public square. Or if one day Christianity becomes illegal, what about my rights, my freedoms? And this anxiety can cause us to, to be fearful of what's going on, who's in power, what's next. Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel 7 through chapter 12, is what's called apocalyptic literature. It's a particular genre. It's a style of writing that uh, showed up around the time of Daniel, about the third or fourth century BC, and mostly continued on into the first or second century AD. In Christianity, we would talk about Daniel and Ezekiel, Joel, and then the book of Revelation as some of these that capture this genre. That's what we're looking at today. And I think it's important when you read a book like Daniel to recognize the portion of it, this latter half, that is apocalyptic literature. And when I use that term, what I mean is it's prophetic and stylistic in language, filled with symbol and metaphor. And a lot of it is looking at the world in which we live through spiritual or eternal lens. And I think it's important to think about how you read the Bible. And in particular, to think about different genres that you're reading. We do this when we're taking an English class in high school. You learn about the different genres and how you read a novel versus nonfiction and how you read poetry different than that. But oftentimes when we read the Bible, we read it all as if it's an instruction manual. But the Psalms and their poetry are different than Paul in his uh, Greek philosophical arguments. An apocalyptic language has its own set of standards of ways to look at things. And we have to remember that there's so much symbol and metaphor that you can't just make one-to-one -one connections. And that's why one of the things that I learned um, when I was studying scripture in seminary and even since then, is that when you get to apocalyptic language like Daniel 7 or the chapters that follow or the book of Revelation, is that you need to focus on, we need to focus on the big idea. The big idea is the purpose that the author had in writing it and how it would have been heard and understood by the original audience. If Daniel's recording this or somebody's recording it for Daniel, those original Jewish exiles 400, 500, 600 years ago, what would they have heard when they read this? And then a second question that I ask of any passage of scripture is, why is this included in the Bible? What is God's aim for us? What does he want us to know from this passage or any passage? So the original intent and God's aim in these things. And one of the things you learn is Daniel 7 through 12, Daniel chapter 7 through 12, this apocalyptic wording language is written for exiles, for people who are powerless and suffering. They're full of fear because they have no rights the dictator in control is a pagan, godless dictator. Their lives could be taken at any moment, and they never know if they'll ever return home to Israel and their freedom. They're hopeless and despairing. This wording is meant to reassure them that yes, there is evil, but God is still on his throne. 
And that's essentially the nature of all apocalyptic, apocalyptic language and wording. It is for those who are in exile. For the particular book of Daniel, Israel, the people of, of God, the chosen people were in exile in Babylon during Daniel's life. And in the years after that, many of them still remained under the thumb of opposing powers. They were powerless and they were suffering. And they felt like there was no way out, no hope. You know, as Christians, we look on a time of exile like the, the people of God in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And we actually, that, that's the description of what it is to be a Christian in the New Testament. In the book of Peter, uh, Peter says that Christians are strangers and aliens, meaning we are never fully at home in this world. And in a sense, we should never be fully at home in this world, in any nation, in any culture. That there are times historically when the church has been persecuted. And throughout history, it has been in a position of against the cultural moment of the day, whatever that culture is. It's always been in a position of exile. And at times it's been particularly powerless. And yet, in those times when the church, when Christianity is particularly powerless, that's when it seems to be most impactful and powerful. It's the church in Nepal right now that is growing. It's the church in China that is spreading. It is the church in the West that is declining. Somehow God uses that incarnational powerlessness to reveal his true power. And that's some of what Daniel is getting at in Daniel chapter 7. It's for us, if we're talking about our you know, moment in time, the cultural and political trajectory worries that Christians have, it's to say, do not lose hope. Be assured God is still in control. Stop acting out of fear and anxiety and worry and despair. As the book of Daniel underlines again and again, we get it out of Nebuchadnezzar's own mouth, essentially in Daniel chapter four, it's the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will. There's no time in history when God is not in control of all of history. And yet in Daniel chapter seven, we get some unsettling things. In Daniel seven, we get a description of it, what happens is Daniel has a vision. Um, and we've been up to this time walking through the life of Daniel, but now we're going back in time. We're going back a couple of decades to a time when uh, Belshazzar was king. This is after Nebuchadnezzar, before Darius that we talked about last week. So we go back in time and Daniel has a vision. In fact, he has a series of visions, but one of them is in Daniel 7. And in the vision in Daniel 7, he has this horrific dream of four creatures, four ghastly, beastly, not normal creatures. One was a lion, eagle, man. Um, another one was bearish. I mean, it's a bear, but it's kind of a deformed giant bear. The third one was a leopard that also had wings and that had four heads. Um, you're not going to find it at the zoo. It's just a strange creature. And the last one... The last one is actually ends up being the focus of a lot of Daniel 7 is the most terrifying. We read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. And behold, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. 
It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So there's these four beasts, and the last one is the most terrifying. What do we do with these things? Well, later on in Daniel chapter 7, which we didn't read, the vision is clarified for Daniel that these are four kingdoms that will come on the earth. Now, most interpreters, if you go look at the biblical interpreters, they look at these things and they say, okay, so the first, the first one is Babylon, and the second one is the Medo-Persians, and the third one is the Greeks, and the fourth is the Romans. But some people split up the Medos and the Persians, and so they stop before they get to the Romans. And then modern interpreters have tried to link it to things going on in the world today. But one of the things that I would suggest is we can't know for sure. We can't know for sure if the first beast that's being talked about is Babylon and the fourth beast is Rome or the fourth beast is Greece or the fourth beast is yet to come. And in fact, um, one commentator notes that four being like the four corners of the earth is symbolic of the whole world. So it's possible there are actually four kingdoms that are being mentioned or it's talking about all the kingdoms that have existed that are in opposition to God. And in this sense, it enters into something that I don't want to go deeply into, but I'm going to hit on just a little bit, and we'll talk about it again next week, is how do you interpret apocalyptic wording, prophecy like this? There are two mainstreams in Christian tradition in looking at them, and they have to do usually with what you do in the book of Revelation with a thing called the millennium. And basically it's this. In one traditional interpretation, um, there is an idea when it comes to something like the beast that there is a particular king and kingdom at the end of time that's really, really bad. But in another tradition, the other tradition within Christianity, um, it's rather that any beast or creature like this is symbolic of all the kings and kingdoms of this earth that have opposed God from Egypt and Babylon through to Rome and to the modern age. It's all the kings and kingdoms that are opposed to God. Now, what neither of the traditional interpretations do is actually look at and think that there's a time of rapture or escape from any thing that will ever happen. Now, that came about about 150 years ago, 200 years ago um, in, in the West, in America, at the same time that Joseph Smith had his dreams. And it was caught on in the West and has spread. But that idea did not exist in early Christianity and still doesn't exist as the primary understanding of what God is going to do in this world. So I'm going to pull that out and say, out of that, um, my own best understanding is that it's most clear that God is often pointing at the kings and kingdoms that are opposed to who he is and what he is doing. And so when we're talking about four beasts or any beast or beasts in the apocalyptic language, it is language that is indicative of the opposing power when God's people are in exile. And so that includes Egypt, when God's people are enslaved, 
or Babylon, who takes Daniel and his friends, or the Persian Empire that came after, or the Greek Empire that uh, caused the suffering of the Maccabees and the Jewish uh, followers in the second century BC, to the time of Rome and those who crucified Jesus. And you could go around the world to any king and kingdom, any empire and emperor that is opposed to God. And that means the colonial powers and the way that they treated people to the communist world or the fascist world of the last century, any dictator or regime. And for that matter, any culture that rejects God as king, any culture that sets itself up as Lord and Savior, which means every culture, every nation, every kingdom. They might be in power, but do not worry, the apocalyptic tells us. Daniel gives us the hope in the face of these great beasts. In Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse, well, not starting, but in verse 13, we read about a savior, a son of man. And behold, Daniel says, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So Daniel's talking about an answer to these beasts, these kingdoms that are opposed to God, the hope of the people in exile. It is a son of man, basically a human being, who is brought before the ancient of days, God. And who is he? Well, the confusing thing is that he's riding on the clouds of heaven. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So to think about that, basically the wording that's used around this son of man is wording that's supposed to be reserved for God. Daniel must have been a little bit unnerved by it to say that a son of man, which is what he was, also had all dominion and glory. All people served him, which is basically to worship. And he has an everlasting kingdom. Not only that, he comes on the clouds of heaven, which doesn't mean in apocalyptic language that you literally are flying on the clouds. It means to have supreme authority. So this man is divine. And he is the hope of those in exile. So how do we get from beasts terrifying and terrorizing to the kingdom rule of this son of man? We get to it in Daniel 7 through a courtroom. We see this in verse 9, which is actually a couple of verses before. It's after we've talked about these beasts and before we talk about the son of man. We get in verse 9, as I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So Daniel has just finished talking about these beasts and going on about the great fourth beast and the one that, that was terrifying and had power and seemed to be ruling and crushing. And then he says, I was brought into a throne room. And on the throne was the Ancient of Days, meaning God. 
And he was white, meaning pure and holy, perfect in every way. And there's fire being described, which fire in biblical imagery has to do with purifying and judgment, meaning justice. So the pure and holy God of justice is sitting on his throne. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. So countless people served him. And tens of thousands of times, tens of thousands stood before him. Again, countless numbers stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. You know, what's interesting is in the ancient world, a courtroom and a throne room were the same thing. Where the king sat was also the court of justice and judgment. And that's being reserved as the place of God. God alone sits on a throne. He is holding court. And in his courtroom, the book of judgment is being brought out. For whom? We get that in verse 11 as it continues. I looked and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This fourth great terrific beast is judged and executed, defeated. Daniel is horrified by this imagery, and yet in the next instance he sees that fourth beast has no power before God. It is brought to judgment by God. It is killed, executed, destroyed, done away with, defeated entirely. He goes on to say in verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, these other three or other ones, the beasts of the world, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Again, getting at apocalyptic language, how long is a season and a time? Or a time, times, and a half, and times. We actually don't know. And so when somebody takes wording like a season or a time in apocalyptic language and says, this means exactly three and a half years, or exactly this many years, it's, it's jumping to a place that could be true. But what we do know is that Daniel is saying that according to God's purposes, the kingdoms of this world are still around. They don't have ultimate dominion. In other words, they might look like they're ruling. It might look like the powers of this world are in control of our nation, of other nations. It certainly did for Daniel and his people when they were under the hand of the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. But God is saying these kingdoms, their dominion does not really exist except that I hand it over to them. And even then they will be defeated and brought to judgment before me. All peoples will, regardless of what sort of power they have or don't in this world. They might live for a season and a time, but their end is coming. It's already been finalized. The point that Daniel is trying to make, not just in Daniel chapter seven, but the rest of Daniel, and really it's the point of all apocalyptic literature. If you go read the book of Revelation, anything that's in the Bible, it's these things, these things that we just saw, is God is Lord and judge, the end. Yes, there is evil, and there are evil kingdoms and kings, but they will be judged and defeated by the true judge and Lord. 
And as the interpretation goes on in the rest of Daniel 7, um, verse 27 tells us that the faithful who endure to the end will be vindicated. God's judgment will come on the unfaithful, those who reject him as God and king. And those who follow God as king will be vindicated. And again, that's not just Daniel 7. That's any time we're reading it, it's those basic things. God is Lord and judge. Evil will be defeated. The faithful will be vindicated. And we can know this because of what took place in another courtroom. You know, on the day of his crucifixion, Jesus was handed over to the political and religious leaders. And what did they do? They sat in judgment on him. They held court for the Son of Man. In Matthew chapter 26, the high priest representing the powers of the religious and political authorities, the high priest questions Jesus. He's on trial. Jesus is on trial. He says, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And at this, the chief priest tore his robe, called out blasphemy. What more needs to be said? He is claiming to be God. And he was. He was claiming to be the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7, the Messiah, the chosen one of God who sits at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, coming in clouds, not meaning that he's going to come floating in, but that he holds supreme authority. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the Judge and Lord of all. I'm the one that has all the kingdoms of this world. And it was, in their mind, a claim to be God. And so they execute him. They judge and execute the Son of Man for claiming to be God. But you know, that's the good news. That's the gospel right there. In Christ, God Almighty became a Son of Man. And he was judged and executed by the kings of this world. And then vindicated through his resurrection and ascension to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. We're not awaiting the day when Christ is in control, like as if Daniel 7 needs to happen at some point in the future. It is happening now. When he rose and conquered death and ascended into heaven, all authority was given to Jesus. No, right now, not every knee bows to him, but he is the one enthroned. So that we, we who reject God, walk our own way, pursue the kingdoms of this world, might be forgiven, might have life in his eternal kingdom. You know, the, the detrimental motivating factors that I've seen in all of us as a pastor and in my own life is guilt, shame, and fear. Guilt, shame, and fear are so much behind a lot of how we live in opposition to God 
and are afraid to walk in the things that he's calling us into. And fear in particular is one I see more and more as I talk to people, as I even think about my own life. Sometimes that fear is built out of a personal sense of what, how we measure up to the world around us. The fear of not being respected, the fear of being alone your whole life, the, the fear of failure, the fear of not being approved of by others. We create in our head a version of measuring up. It's essentially the judgment scales. And we fear that our record will not measure up. We separately have these cultural fears that we've been talking about over the past year, and I talked about at the beginning here today. The fear of loss of status, loss of power, loss of rights. Life as we know it isn't going to be the same here in America. That fear, that fear is what motivates the worst of our cultural climate. And so we fight them, whoever they are, like we're fighting for the last drop of water on earth. And really it's a fear of the future and wanting control, wanting to be in control of what's happening, our own lives, our culture, the future. We want to hold on to it. Whether it's our own personal record or our future, we want to be in control. I need to remember personally, I need to remember the good news of the courtroom that Daniel talked about in Daniel 7 and the courtroom that ultimately took place in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Because of Christ and because of the cross, I don't need to look at my record to justify me nor fear if I measure up. And so I'm not as anxious and fearful about being approved of or respected or being alone. I measure up because of Christ's death for me. He paid the punishment for me. And because of the resurrection and ascension, I don't need to fear the future or worry how or when things are going to happen. I can't control the future, but there is one who sits on the throne. There is a judge. And there is a judgment and an eternal kingdom that ends all kingdoms. And there is a king. There is a king to whom has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That king sits on the throne. And when I go back to that, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and the one who is truly on the throne, my fears wash away because I entrust myself, my community, my family, this nation, everything to him.